Welcome to Hand Therapy Heroes, the premier podcast on hand and upper extremity rehabilitation. As a worldwide educator and developer of best-in-class hand therapy content, Susan Weiss, occupational therapist and certified hand therapist, brings you an array of hand therapy specialists, hand care solutions, and more. Welcome to Hand Therapy Heroes. We have a dynamic hero as our guest today. Let's welcome Dr. Jim Wagner. Dr. Wagner is an occupational therapist and certified hand therapist who has worked in upper extremity orthopedics for over 25 years. He received his post-professional clinical doctorate from Rocky Mountain University with a specialty in hand therapy. Dr. Wagner is currently the team leader of the OT Hand Therapy Department at Guthrie Hand Center in Pennsylvania. Dr. Wagner is also the adjunct professor in the occupational therapy programs, actually a few occupational therapy programs throughout New York. Dr. Wagner is an avid educator and has traveled throughout the country as a clinical instructor for Hawk Grips teaching IASTM teaching levels one and two, and advanced IASTM, cupping, kinesiology taping, and even blood flow restriction training. We are fortunate enough to have the opportunity to have two podcast sessions with Dr. Wagner, so we can learn some tips and tricks to use in our clinical practices about these various techniques. So let's get started on our first session with this superhero. I would love for you to share with us today how you got into the niche of hand and upper extremity rehabilitation. That'd be great. Hey, I just wanna say thank you too for having me, Susan. This is a great opportunity to be able to share what I've learned over the last 25 plus years of clinical experience and my successes and failures But uh, as we go along. Um, but yeah, I, I've, my first love has always been powerlifting. Uh, weightlifting. So um, I did my first competition, bodybuilding competition at 15, and I came in fourth place out of four people. So that was my claim to fame. So I, <laughs> so I really got into it there. I loved the physical aspect of, of the body. The body's an amazing design. It's awesome. It's super cool. So um, I, I got into uh, working for an intermediate care facility at that point, and then came into contact with occupational therapy and physical therapy fell in love with OT and applied, got into school. And then once I graduated, I worked uh, for Health South Rehab um, for a period of time at a brain injury hospital in Erie, Pennsylvania. It was the greatest experience I had. Uh, and from one of those things, it was very eclectic. And I think that's what formulated what I do now because uh, I'm a very eclectic therapist. Uh, I'm not defined by my treatment modality. Um, and so uh, I got into a lot of musculoskeletal things there. And I've always loved incorporating a lot of the strength and conditioning into what we do as occupational therapists. So that's where it really started in, in that, uh, that practice setting right there, working with people on the ventilator. Uh, and then we began to do a lot of splinting, orthotic fabrication, stuff like that, and then a musculoskeletal work. Um, then what happened is I started to work in a small outpatient department for a couple of years uh, and really found that my training was pretty in inadequate, really. Um, so I began the process with your book, uh, by the way, Purple Book, um, uh, starting to really delve into a lot of study. And I love to read. 
So I studied everything I get my hands on. Um, and then um, looked into strength and conditioning. So I became a certified strength conditioning specialist and then brought that aspect of strength and conditioning into my musculoskeletal practice. So from that point there, um, I began to look at what I was good at and what I wasn't so good at. And that started my process of delving into all these different areas where that could have an impact on our client factors, you know, the integument, you know, all that good jazz. Um, and just kind of went from there. So I'm not very good at, um, I don't like, I'm not like, I love kids. I'm just not good at pediatrics and, and I'm not good in the geriatric setting, but the musculoskeletal setting outpatient was really, really fun. So. It's really interesting that you incorporated the strength and conditioning. And I think we're going to touch on that a little bit with some of the techniques that you use. Um, one of the things that I know that you've utilized in your practice and are a highly esteemed educator in is the IASTM techniques. Can you tell us a little bit about exactly what that means and how you incorporate it into your clinical practice? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I find that the majority, a lot of what we do is in modifying those client factors, those things right there is really having an impact on the integumentary system and the fascial system. It's really an amazing design. There's so much stuff. The, 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 the organ of the integument, the skin, there's so many nociceptors, so many, you know, capillaries, all kinds of things that just um, are in that fascial system. And we have such a big impact on that area. Um, so I started, and even also in um, rehabbing ourselves over the years, I, I began to look at, you know, how do I, how do I keep myself moving too? Um, I looked at the amount of trauma that we see in the upper quarter in the hand therapy world. And, and most of all, what we did was managing soft tissue mobility. So um, I got into instrument assisted soft tissue mobility, probably, I want to say maybe 15, 18 years ago, maybe worked for another company that did some soft tissue mobility when they came to do some training. And, and there really wasn't a whole lot in the area of hand therapy at that time. Mm -hmm. And it was just a general from the, you know, from the cervical spine down to the plantar fascia. And they really kind of skipped over the, when they got below the elbow. So I thought, man, I need to kind of fill that gap, you know, see a need, fill a need, that type of thing. So the instrument assisted soft tissue mobility, I um, really, I began to see some nice changes in my patients when I looked at it, from a global aspect of things and, and uh, um, began to kind of utilize that tissue, uh, technique and hone it a little more effectively for our upper extremity hand related patients, especially in the, in the presence of any kind of trauma um, uh, or even those tendinopathy patients, those chronic, you know, uh, um, patients where they have so many uh, um, symptoms like the tendinopathies, you know, that mucoid degeneration, lack of good blood flow in those particular tendon areas. And then um, we began to see some nice results with that. So. so what's the difference between using an instrument and your hands? I don't use the tools to replace my hands at all. And I've talked to many clinicians like, oh, I've got to use my hands. Absolutely, you do. It's just another tool. I put that within my, tool my toolbox, and it really gives me an opportunity to fit the tool in intimate locations where I couldn't get that beforehand. You know, so if I'm going to do some scar nudging and lifting, I would use my thumbs and fingers. Now I'm going to be able to use a tool designed to, for specific body parts to kind of get in and really have a much more effective, uh, efficacious use um, over. I, have, I can cover much more um, soft tissue areas. Uh, I can get a more intimate um, fit with the tool. So, and also the tool design and the material does make a difference in, its, um, um, in the quality of it. So I've used everything from 
plastic, acrylic to high-grade stainless steel, and there is a difference in the reverberation through the instrument when you use it over the, over the tissue itself. So what specific ones do you use on a regular basis in your clinic that you find the most effective? So I've used um, most everything that's out there on the market right now. There's something that comes out all the time. Over the last, you know, 10 years has been a, an explosion of different instruments. Sure. Um, so, uh, and I've had people say, oh, I can use a butter knife. Well, sure, you can use a butter knife, but you're probably going to get hurt with it. And there's a lot more to it than just rubbing a tool on a body part. Mm -hmm. Anybody can do that. Um, so it takes a, a skilled clinician to really understand the clinical reasoning behind it. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Where are they in the inflammatory phase, the wound healing phase? What am I trying to achieve and what's my target tissue, right? So then you pick the tool. I, I, I have used lots of different ones. I use the hot grip instruments. So I find the balance of the instrument, uh, the design, the cross hatching on the tool. A lot of times I just let the weight of the instrument uh, do the work for me. Mm -hmm. So the least amount of pressure to get the job done is the most important. So, um, and, and I find that they've served me very, very well. Um, I've tried other ones and I have other ones, but I, and I always encourage people to try different things, but we always seem to gravitate back towards those in the clinic. Um, and, and they're, they're very well balanced and the, the weight of the tool and also the, the, uh, the surgical stainless steel is a higher grade. And when I use that tool on the integument, um, it's comfortable and I can I get a nice reverberation of any kind of superficial, myofascial trigger points, gritty tissue, scar tissue that actually comes up through the tool into my hands. Oh, that's what I was going to ask. A, a lot of therapists, you know, and old school therapists would, I would guess that they would say, well, I can't feel the tissue because I'm using an instrument. And what you just said is that you actually feel tissue through the instrument. So that's an interesting concept. Can you explain a little bit more how that works? Yeah, I think what happens is we've done in the past is we've, we've manhandled our patients so much, I think. And really, I've found over the years of honing this technique is the least amount of pressure you need to do to get the job done is the most important. So if you're standing on a street corner waiting for a bus and someone comes up and pushes you, you're going to hold your ground or push back. Same thing with a tissue. If I try to crank on somebody's joint, which I do very little of that, um, if I try to push on someone's soft tissue, I'm going to get a reactive flare. So what I do is I allow the, my, my feel through, um, through the tool to glide over the integument, over the area that might be restricted, and I get a feel for how that, when we use that lighter amount of pressure, it allows that, that vibration or reverberation to transfer through that, that material into your hands. Mm -hmm. So it really does make a difference. Um, and the material design and, like I said, the, the uh, quality material does make a difference as well. So many times I'll do a, just a quick scan to begin with with a person and to see over that particular body part, see how they feel. Very, very light. And, and then that particular area may light up. Um, if it does and that's a particular area that might be causing some, some pain irritation, I might focus my treatment right then and there. I would guess it would be a way to find some trigger points that you might not even know were there just by the light assessment technique. Yes, and a lot of times really, I mean, this is just a tool. So it really takes your skilled clinical mind to really assess what's, and this tool, this technique might not be for everybody, but it's an option you can have within your tool bag that is very effective. Many people say, oh, you know, the research doesn't show that uh, it's effective. Well, there's a lot of research that's out there but there's not a lot of good research. And there is some research that supports it. And I think we've become so research driven that we, we miss the forest for the trees. This is another tool that's effective in helping us manage those symptoms that the patients are coming in with and get to the real point. Um, I can do a nice subscapularis release uh, and sideline with a, with a tool where I had to use my fingers beforehand. 
Um, and it also gives a nice broad area as opposed to, you know, and it saves your hands a little bit over the years too, I got to admit. So. That's what I was going to ask you next. I can't imagine the difference on your pressure use with a tool versus with your own hands. Yeah. Got to be quite significant, the difference. I, I'm a very hands-on clinician. I think, again, with everything with these modalities, the number one thing with our patients really is still to put your hands on the patient. Use that therapeutic use of self, you know, of that, that, that we always talk about in school. Uh, we need to, to not do something to somebody, but do something with somebody. So this is an intimate treatment where we're actually working with them and they, so they can feel what we're doing and they're giving us good feedback to that. We're not out to rake a tool across somebody's skin and crush them and so they're bruised and painful. I, the internet is full of bad instrument assistance. So just pop on Instagram or, or anything like that all for a few minutes and you'll see some bad stuff. Um, the idea is using the, the tool effectively at the right time in the right clinical presentation with the right patient. Um, but really it's, it's been a very effective treatment that's helped me in certain cases to really address the, the problem, whether it be like you said, a myofascial trigger point, whether it be extrinsic tightness or shortening, whether or now I can use a small carpal tunnel tool to get maybe into the dorsal interossei. You know, it was where beforehand I could had to get my thumbs in there. Um, and I'll tell you, over the years, my MP, my MP joints and my thumbs aren't happy. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes when I do a little, you know, maybe an adductor release. or And so instead of doing that with my pinch and my thumbs, I can now use a, uh, a little tool to kind of get in there and hold that pressure for a period of time without fatigue on my hands. So it's helpful. And the way you're describing it, it's, it's not used instead of your hands, but as an extension of your hands. Absolutely. Yeah. Many times first, what I'll do is I'll, I'll put my hands on the patient first. You know, I'll, I'll just move that integument around the different areas. You know, we've got a long, uh, you know, scar. I'll see which way that that scar is moving better than others. I'll assess that first. Then I'll just have my tools right there. I'll let them play with them first to see what they feel like. Um, make a few jokes around the bottom that there's some medieval type of torture devices. And then I'll let them mess with them. And then we'll begin to incor in, uh, incorporate them into um, our practice. One of the biggest things is really educating your patient, I think, on what they're going to do. And so many times I've had people come in and they see my tools and they're like, don't touch me with those things. I've had a therapy clinic down the road and they killed me with them. So I have to go back and say, I'm sorry that happened. I want you to trust me here a little bit. Uh, I'm going to do this treatment. and You tell me you're in control. If this bothers you, let me know. I'll back off. And if, if they're too sensitive for it, I'll use my hands to begin with. And then once I can hone in on that area and then feel more comfortable, I'll get right in there with the instruments. And, and again, it's not either or. We either are an either or group sometimes. I like to take a both and approach, which is much mm -hmm. more effective. I would love to know what your top two or three diagnoses that are go-to typically. I know you can't put everybody in like, okay, everybody that has carpal tunnel needs instruments, but what right. are your top few that you find the instruments are a fabulous assist to your clinical outcomes. So if anyone says they love treating tennis elbow, I think there's something wrong with them. <laughs> so um, I, I, uh, I originally started into it because of that. So I remember going to the Philly at one point a long time ago, and I remember Sue Mikovich stood up on stage and she said, uh, tennis elbow, everything works and nothing works. Um, and so I thought about that and I said, boy, that's just, I feel the same way. So I really began to delve into that. And then Jane Fedorczyk put out a great article on tendinopathies, um, on really tendon histopathology and stuff. And it's, she's in my like top five articles. So thanks, thanks Jane for doing that. Um, so uh, I think it's a great article to read. 
And really, we're asking the wrong questions about these a lot of times. Not everyone that comes in with a tendon issue is acutely inflamed, and not everyone is coming in chronic. So what we need to do is ask where they are in these timeframes of wound healing, and I'm talking about the chronicity or acuity of this here. So what I began to see is that the majority of my patients came in and they've had six injections, they've had physical therapy, occupational therapy, uh, chiropractic over the last seven years, and still have chronic lateral elbow pain. So I started to think outside the box, what else could be the problem? Maybe there's a lower trap serratus anterior issue. Remember, we got to think globally, that whole concept of regional interdependence with these as well. What else is going on? It's just stop chasing pain, you know, great cook type of thing or whatever there, and stop chasing those things and look at what else is the issue? Is it, is it a proximal problem there? And so I started scanning these other areas with the tools and found that many of our people are just really under exercise. So I looked in other areas, started working on some proximal stability, and then addressed those areas of pain because a lot of times that's just a symptom. So uh, in a lot of those chronic patients, um, looking at tendon histopathology, we're going to get into that. It's that lack of blood flow, lack of good, um, uh, that abnormal neovascularization, they call it, or uh, a mucoid degeneration. So our docs were saying when they get into those tenotomies, it's just a great dusky glump of tissue at, at that origin of the lateral condyle. And so the, one of the proposed mechanisms behind instrument-assisted, when used correctly, is mechanotransduction, increasing blood flow, external pressure to create internal changes. So what I've done is at the right uh, um, uh, dosage with the instruments, we actually were able to increase fibroblastic activity, increase in hyperemia of the area, increase in blood flow around there without killing the tissue um, and making the person worse off when they came in. And I was getting some great results with it. What was great is, is I take the tools to the gym. Those guys are free customers. <laughs> Most of them had all kinds of tendinopathies. So I just rake them over and work them over. They're like, hey, this stuff's pretty cool. What's going on? Give me some more. <laughs> so then I took it back to the clinic. <laughs> so uh, if that helps, if that makes sense to you, it really started to really change the way my philosophy on how I'm going to address these because not every patient gets tools. Not every patient gets a splint for tennis elbow. You know, and I found that immobilization doesn't always work with these people. So we've got to ask the question is, is what's, the, what's the tendon histopathology? What's the etiology? And what else is going on with that whole fascial system that could be causing that issue? So tennis elbow is my number one. Um, I've had some nice results with that. I would say my number two is just um, tissue trauma in general. Mm -hmm. That fibrotic, thickened tissue we work in a very blue collar area multiple hospital system with lots of farmers and you know um, got a lot of overuse syndromes and stuff like that and so this has been a nice tool in helping mobilize what needs to be mobilized then we can get into corrective exercises and those types of things as well had some great stuff especially with scar management you know some of those cases can be so difficult with what what to utilize so it's a great asset to have in your skill set so when people want to learn a little bit more about instrument assisted. Do they have to become certified to do this? How can they learn more? I know we're going to provide them some information um, later about how to get more information on your courses and materials. Just because you have a certification doesn't mean you're good at what you do. What I find with the instrument assisted is that you should have some kind of hands-on coursework that allows you to actually feel that tissue. So one of the things I've seen over teaching years of teaching these courses is that we've gone to places where one therapist has taught this therapist and it's been trickled down, trickled down, trickled down. And we, I say, all right, show me your technique. And they're using the instrument backwards, upside down, uh, at a wrong angle. 
Um, so really, um, I feel that the hands-on lab work is crucial for this, even if you watch some videos, because you're not getting the feel of the instrument. Remember, it's that every instrument's a little bit different. So what I like about the Hawk Grip courses is that it's like two, two and a half hours of didactic, boring learning and research, which you know isn't really boring. But the point is, is that we've got to get that basic foundation and build that foundation of the house first. And then for the next like six hours, we're in the class learning together. We're putting it on, you know, diagnostic specific. We're learning the technique. Uh, we're learning how to integrate it into practice. Uh, and then what I found over the years of teaching, people are like, oh, I didn't know that this is what you have to do. I didn't know you can go this light with it. I didn't know blah, blah, blah. And so finding a good hands-on course is going to be the most. And even the courses that say you're certified, you should look to see how much lab time you're getting because that's key. I've been to courses beforehand because I need continuing education myself. And I've done instrument-assisted courses from other companies. And we get like six hours of uh, research and maybe an hour and a half at the most with a particular tool. Well, I want pearls to go back to my clinic and I want to learn how to use the instrument. So that's why, um, that's how I teach. So, But someone can actually obtain instruments and utilize them without being certified. Yes, you can. I mean, you can go on Amazon today uh, and buy some tomorrow uh, and have them home tomorrow. I have friends of mine at the CrossFit gym, fellow powerlifters, and they're like, come, hey, Wagner, hey, I got myself this new like tool here. Um, great. And then I, I'll wait for him like, hey, can you show me how to use it? Yeah. <laughs> so I'll, I'll meet them and they're like, okay, this is your tool. This is what it can do. Um, and some places have videos. Those types of things are great. But great, you can have the greatest tool in your hand. If you aren't using it effectively, it doesn't mean anything. So I, I feel that um, I'm very, I feel very strongly about the idea of at least having someone who has got some, some good training in it, show you how to use the tool effectively. Um, Agree. So, so, you know, I, I feel that's the best, uh, best way to go. I, yeah, I agree with you totally. And speaking of tools, that brings me to another kind of buzzword that people are talking about is the cupping tools. Mm -hmm. And I know you're also quite skilled in educating therapists on how to utilize that. So I'm very interested for you to share with our listeners what cupping is, a little bit of the history, right. and tell us some more about cupping certification. Yeah, yeah, I know. And here we go. This is just another tool. Again, um, as, as a clinician, when someone comes into my clinic, I want to be able to have, if it's out there and it's efficacious and it may help, I want to have that skill set available. So uh, my daughter's just starting PT school. I need to have a job. So I don't want to send somebody away so there's nothing I can do for them. There's always something you can do for your patient. So I want to learn about what's out there. So I, I began to look deeper into this one. Uh, was it Michael Phelps came up out of the water with a pox on his shoulder? And, you know, we started getting calls at the clinic. Do you guys do cupping? Well, cupping has been around for a long time. Um, so we said, yes, we do. But then it gained a whole lot more popularity. So really, if you take a look, and I had a couple, I layer the techniques, the cupping techniques in with my instrument assistant. Okay. So I may mobilize what needs to be mobilized. Maybe you have something that's hypomobile. Then I'm going to go ahead and use that cupping technique. And what it does is it, it compresses through the rim and decompresses the, into the, through the negative pressure inside the chamber. Okay. So where's where the instrument assisted compresses, the, mm -hmm. the, the cupping decompresses. So it gives, I guess you, for lack of a better term, a fascial lift 
And, and so it's purported to do lots of things, mm-hmm. but really when it comes down to it, it's best for short-term pain management and also soft tissue mobility. So it's another tool. Um, and if you do a research, a lit study, a lit research, which um, I, I lit, uh, review, and I've done a couple of them, uh, there's not a whole lot of great research to support its use. But does that mean it's not effective? No, it means that there hasn't been good research done to support its use. And people do get better from it. Again, it's another technique where you can uh, use to help mobilize hypomobile tissue, painful tissue to help increase blood flow and decrease tone in that particular area. Um, so yes, I have done it in multiple regions. And if you remember, remember the um, uh, snake bite kits from a long yes. time ago? Mm-hmm. There we are, right? Quite well. Right. So Unscars, stuck down scars. There's a tool just like it. Now we're just honing that skill a little bit differently. Um, and so I add it with that as a portion. You can do dynamic cupping, static cupping. Uh, you can do static cupping on a moving body part. You can do dynamic cupping on a, on a moving body part. So there's various types of, of cups and techniques that you can do with it that have been effective. So, so there's a, a variety of cups out there too. I'm guessing that people can find out, you know, about courses and yeah. t- the different ones on the market as well. Yeah. When, again, when, when cupping first came out again, really onto the, onto the big stage, um, all of a sudden you had all kinds of people saying, oh, you got to take a four day cupping certification course, uh, blah, blah, blah. And, and really um, not so. Um, again, you can buy these cups on Amazon. You can buy anything on Amazon. Uh, and again, um, but knowing some basic, you know, precautions and contraindications, those types of things are important, you know, as well. There's not a whole lot there, but, um, yeah, I have a few go-tos that I like. Um, I do travel between clinics sometimes. So I have a little portable bag of the hot grips cups. They're a silicone, um, cup that's very easy to use and utilize. And you can use an emollient, a glycerin based emollient that I can use to move around on the tissue. Um, that works really effectively. They're easy to clean in between patients and I, they're very portable. And I have a bigger set that I use. I do also like some of the, um, uh, the AccuZone cups, also these big acrylic cups. There's a lot of different sizes where I can monitor the pressure through a pump system. Oh, so, wow. so that I can use, and, and, and again, they're, they're, they're a nice system that I use also in conjunction with those. So, um, uh, I like both of them, and I think a lot of times you need to try multiple things. Um, you need to make sure, one, that it's, they're easily cleaned. Uh, you can use them in between patients. That's what I like about the, the Hawk cupping system there is I can clean it off. They're nice, easy silicone-based uh, cup, um, easy to clean, uh, set your wet times or whatever, and then I can use them in multiple patients. So um, I think just go out and try the different products out there and see what ones are out there. Yeah, it reminds me when you said about the snake bite kit that we used, you know, 30 some odd years ago, yeah. myself, but <laughs> with that, and then afterwards they'd have like a, the, almost like a bruise or a, do you yeah, have yeah. that type of markings with these cups that are utilized now? What, what would one expect after the use of cups on a patient? Great, great question. And yeah, and, and it can vary. It can vary from, um, from patient to patient. And I think just like anything else, um, there's not a good understanding sometimes. Many people will say, oh, you're drawing the uh, uh, interstitial fluid out of there. You're pulling out, uh, um, you know, some uh, 
waste byproducts and things like that. But I'm really not trying to draw fluid out of anything. I'm really not. What I'm trying to look at do, and you can modify the amount of pressure that's within the cup. I'm not looking to cause, again, uh, increase in inflammatory process within that tissue. What I'm trying to do is, is, again, relax that tissue, maybe through the afferent sensory stimulation or input into the integument, uh, and do a little fascial differential gliding with adhesed tissue or, or that type of thing there. So um, some people do get some petechiae or they get some, uh, some ecchymosis or bruising afterwards, but it's not really bruising the fact where they've been injured. It shouldn't be, at least. It should be a nice, gentle, one of those at the most hurts that feels good type of things. Mm -hmm. So again, we're not trying to kill anybody with these, with these tools. Um, I have seen some people, um, and I've worked on my children as well with all this stuff and myself, where maybe they have a, um, a, a ligament strain or a muscle spra a strain or something like that. And we might see um, some redness underneath the cup afterwards. That's the most I've ever had with those types of things. I have had times where we see some real um, um, engorgement of blood in a particular area where it may have worked over top of a scar. Um, but that's the most I've seen. I'm not looking to draw any extracellular fluid out of there. I'm not looking to do wet cupping, which is putting a little nick in the skin and pulling mm -hmm. the blood from that particular area. Um, which has been, there's been a lot of research on that as well, especially in, in, uh, um, in, in Asia and those places like that there. Um, but I just tell people afterwards, drink lots of water, stretch, uh, follow your, um, your normal home program. And again, remember, this is just the tool that you're using in conjunction. Not everybody gets cupping. Um, who, who specifically wouldn't get cupping then? Obviously, people with very thin skin would not be good candidates because they'd have yeah, skin tears. I, right. Yeah, so I might use it with people, and I can, you can still use it with your geriatric population, but you're going to use less pressure with a cup. Mm -hmm. I still use instrument-assisted with some of my geriatric population, too, but I use much less pressure. Um, so, again, that's where you have to come in and say, oh, I've got to use my clinical reasoning skills. Why? Uh, I'm not going to use it with people who have lymphedema. I'm not going to use it with my, with my DVTs. You know, people have a DVT or any history, you know, those types of things. I'm not going to put it over an open wound. You know, it's kind of silly, but you shouldn't do that. Don't put it over your eye, anything like that. <laughs> um, the, the point is, is the, there are those people that you, you have to be cautious with it and know your patient. So just like anything else. But let's say maybe someone who has thin, onion-like skin, fragile, I might, do, I might not do a dynamic cupping with it. Maybe I'll just let it set statically over that particular area. Or maybe I'll leave it there and not move the cup and have them move the body part, right? So there's some great video that I use that as we'll put the cup over top of a scar, then I'll have them do extrinsic stretches. And then what you're doing is you're drawing that tissue up in there and moving that tissue up and down through the, uh, you're getting a nice differential fascial tissue glide along with that. So um, yes, there are precautions and, and a lot of them are the same as you normally would, but um, just be aware of your patient and what they can and can't tolerate. Yeah, that makes brilliant sense about the soft tissue glide while you're having the cup pull the tissue away and they're doing the activity because you can, when you watch a patient do exercise, oftentimes you see the scar moving along yeah. while they're doing the activity. Yeah. So incorporating that into pulling the scar tissue in essence away from where it's yeah. adhered while they're doing the activity. There's some great yeah. techniques where I'll set a scar or I'll set a cup at one end of the, of the scar and as, let's say my open reduction internal fixation or F, you know, distal radius, those types. I'll set a cup at one end and a cup at the other end. We'll do a little fascial torsioning back and forth with it. We'll do a little lifting and torquing with it a little bit, not twerking, torquing. So we'll do <laughs> Thanks for clarifying that. <laughs> yeah, sure. And then we'll have them move the wrist back and forth. And again, you're right. You see that thing, that whole concept of one wound, one scar. And when you can get that tissue gliding and sliding again, 
through whatever uh, whatever technique you want to do, it makes a lot more sense. Then what you do is you increase blood flow to that area just from relaxing that tissue. You get better capillary flow. You get uh, nervous system better. You know all those little nerve endings that pierce through all that good jazz start to feel happier. Um, you know the tissue begins to to have again differential glide, so it takes pressure off those nociceptors. You get better proprioception. Um, so and and I'll do a lot of times I'll put cupping proximally with my people and then have them maybe do some wrist proprioceptive exercises for the wrist and stuff like that. Again, to getting that fascial glide and slide uh, going again. With this technique and even with the instrument, is there, is that a separate billing code or is it all under myofascial care or what, what codes do you recommend people utilize when they're doing these types of techniques? Yeah, there's a couple of different ways you can do that. And what we, mostly what we do is we take a look at the definition of CPT code for, for manual therapy. Most of the time it's under a manual therapy. You're modifying or manipulating or mobilizing, you're going to have to be careful of verbiage, mobilizing the, the soft tissue structures. You're, you're managing. So you can incorporate most of the time the instruments with your hands and all stuff into the manual therapy charge. Okay. Sometimes with the cupping, if I'm just using that, I could still make a case for the manual therapy charge based on how long I'm doing it for. My documentation does it support the charge. Um, sometimes I'll do it for um, neuromuscular reeducation. Say I'm just mm-hmm. trying to get better proprioception or something like that. Maybe I'm not doing it very long or I'm putting in the key locations and having them moving. So I won't bill cupping under neuromuscular education, but maybe the activity that I'm doing is, di- is uh, um, documented as neuromuscular re-ed, and I'm just using that tool during that activity. You see what I'm so saying? Re- it really is just a matter of documentation. It really is, yeah. Yeah, it's using, you know, knowing your CPT code what, and then using the tool um, document it correctly so so it makes sense for reimbursement. Thank you, Dr. Wagner, for introducing us to both instrument-assisted treatment and cupping. We are excited to have you teach us some courses for exploring hand therapy on these techniques and to learn more about your live and video courses that you do with Hawk Grips. For those of you listening, that want a list of Jim's upcoming courses, the information sheet, which will include articles reviewed in both episodes, as well as links to find any tools discussed, please email info at handtherapy.com and just put in the topic or the body of the email somewhere, podcast with Jim, and we will get that to you. And our next episode of Hand Therapy Heroes will feature Dr. Wagner and will be a continuation of this discussion and we will explore the technique of blood flow restriction and kinesiology taping. Thank you for listening to Hand Therapy Heroes. Please subscribe and leave a five-star review. Visit handtherapy.com and register for our newsletter containing free content and courses about our fascinating hands. Hold hands today for a more functional tomorrow.